Luke and Matthew. Uh, I'm here at Cliff Saber with Curtis Pittman and Nick Westberg, and we're walking through the text of Matthew, going verse by verse, section by section, trying to you know understand what this inspired book of, of the Bible is teaching us. We believe that as you work through a book of the Bible, it's our job to try to you know unearth the inspired themes and ideas that are being furthered by by the book. You'll find that we're not bouncing around a lot. We're trying to stay just in the book of Matthew and trying to figure out what message the Holy Spirit is inspiring Matthew to pin down for us. We won't do a lot of review because I know most of you probably listening have been part of this class so far, but the book of Matthew is written to try to prove to the Jews that Jesus is the promised Messiah, but he doesn't neglect the Gentiles in this book. He, he shows how God wants them to receive salvation and blessings too. We just finished up the Sermon on the Mount, which is the largest sermon we have recorded of Jesus in Scripture. And now we're into Matthew chapter 8, where we are emphasizing the authority and power of Jesus. And the reason we're emphasizing this is because Matthew emphasizes it. Nick, will you read chapter 7, verse 28 and 29 for us? This is right after the Sermon on the Mount completes. And what does Matthew say about Jesus here? It says, and when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching. For he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. So Jesus in the whole Sermon on the Mount shows himself to be an authoritative teacher. Sure. He stands right. out above the scribes and the Pharisees. What stood out to you about how Jesus was different than the scribes and the Pharisees well, in this sermon? In the Sermon on the Mount specifically? Yeah, specifically the Sermon on the Mount. Um, what does he do that yeah, makes him authoritative? He just, he, a lot of times he'll say something from the perspective of God, it seems like. Yeah. You know, it's not like the scribes will say, oh, well, here's what the what God teaches. Jesus says, here's what God teaches, but here's what I say to you. He puts himself in the place, especially in chapter 5. Well, yeah, or even chapter know, 7 when he says, seven. many will say to me, he's many putting himself in the exactly. judgment seat. Yeah. Right. What about you, Curtis? What stood out to you there about the authority of Jesus? Yeah, no, exactly. That's what I was thinking when you were asking Nick, that it's here, whoever hears these words of mine, yeah, whoever right. does this, that's, right. uh, that's mine. But then uh, also throughout, he, he's calling um, the people to a higher level of yeah, righteousness. Right. And that was something that the Pharisees, we, I, I think by context we see, didn't do. They didn't call them to, to live uh, with their heart. Yeah, what the the true righteousness. Right. Yeah. Not just doing these actions, but doing it from the right purpose. And that's the difference. The difference is doing. The difference is not making sure the action is completed. The difference is, is whether you don't or do or don't do it. You can do it to in the sense of like, uh, here's what I think you want to see. Yeah. And you can do it in the sense of, this is what I feel that God is calling me to do. Jesus and calls in our motivation, our right, why, right? Exactly. What did I say this week? If we know our why, our how makes sense. Yep. See? So see, he wants us to, <laughs> to change our why, ultimately. So he taught with authority, and the crowds were amazed. In the chapter 8, the authority of Jesus is mentioned again. We have his authority over you know external illnesses like leprosy. We have his authority over kind of space and stuff because you have Jesus healing the centurion servant when he's not even there. Right. So Jesus isn't confined by location. Mm -hmm. You have the mother-in-law being healed and um, she's able to immediately get up and serve them. And then you even have him casting out demons, but not a lot is mentioned about demons. And we'll talk more about demons here yeah. in this section. And then in the last one we looked at, we have Jesus's power over nature mm -hmm. where he calms the storm, right? Sure. He's asleep in the boat, but he goes out, rebukes the winds and the waves and then at the end of it, in verse 27 of Matthew chapter 8, it says, The men were amazed, just like the ones at the end of the Sermon on the Mount. The men were amazed and said, What kind of man is this that even the winds and the sea obey him? Jesus isn't like any other man. There, He is the Messiah. He's the one we should follow. And Matthew is making sure that we see that. And it's almost like we ain't seen nothing yet. Yeah, I mean... We already had the Sermon on the Mount. We've had these miracles. We have its birth. We have the fulfillment of prophecy. We have all of this. And he, there's still more that comes showing his authority and his power. So we'll pick up in Matthew chapter 8. And if you're following along, I encourage you to open up your Bibles there and read along. And we will be discussing this Wednesday night in our Zoom class at 7 o'clock. And if you need help logging into that, message one of us and we'll get you that information. Maybe you've never logged into it before. You're still welcome to join. So Matthew chapter 8. In verse 28, this is after Jesus calms the storm. Remember, they were crossing the sea, Sea of Galilee, in a boat, and he calms it, and now they get to the other side. Verse 28, when he came to the other side into the country of the Gadarenes, two men who were demon-possessed met him as they were coming out of the tombs, and they were extremely violent so that no one could pass that by that way. 
So now we're introduced to, you know, demonic possession here, which automatically perks our interest real quick because it's interesting, it's strange, it's abnormal. But so he gets there and notice, though, how quick this happens. So right when they get there, two demon-possessed men meet him, and they were coming out of the tombs. They're violent, and no one could pass by. So just on the surface, we have two guys that are living in a place that's spooky. Okay, they're living in the tombs. Maybe it's just their, you know, a place of the dead. You know, place yeah, of dead people. but they're kicked so. out of society and all of that. And they're also extremely violent. So it's, I think sometimes we look at demon possession as, oh, poor person, they got a demon. But it seems like this is a, this is a, a violent issue. This might be, you know, something like someone, well, I don't know what happened in this person's life that allowed this demon to get there. I do lean toward that maybe there was, you know, you dabble in evil long enough, maybe something could happen, you know, that kind of thing. Maybe they asked for it. Yeah, who knows? I know in ancient, you know, like Native American culture, from, from that friends that lived down there, that that's something that they believe that someone has to ask into them, which I thought was interesting. Not that this is the same case, but um, that that's what they encountered. Yeah. And yeah. you know, the Bible doesn't give us it answers to it. It's yeah. like all of a sudden, and there's demons. We're like, whoa, whoa what? It would be counterproductive to what the Bible's trying to do. Yeah. You know? I mean, we would want, I mean, the questions I get asked the most are demons, angels, revelation. We always yeah. want to know the unknown things, and we don't know a lot about demons. And But what we do know is that God's more powerful than them, and that they're bad guys, okay? So these bad guys are inside these men and causing them to act violently so the people can't pass by. So it's like they're blocking the road and, you know, Carrying on. Verse 29. And they cried out, saying, What business do we have with each other, Son of God? So they call him the Son of God here. Now, is this the first time we were hearing Son of God so much in Matthew? Do you know? I'd have to go back and look. Because I know that. Maybe in chapter 4. In chapter 4, when Jesus is tempted by Satan, um, he references worship and that you should only right. worship if, if God. If you are the Son of God, yeah. right? He says, yeah. Satan calls so, him the Son of God. Satan, and now right. Satan's, I guess you'd say his servants, you know, in some way. I, I don't know how the rank of Satan and demons completely operate, but the demons are always in cahoots with Satan. Mm-hmm. Right. So they, the devil and the demons, acknowledge Jesus as the Son of God. And I just want to back up for a second here. What we kind of covered last week, that all these people, you know, they're... That are being healed at the beginning of this section are calling Jesus Lord. Yeah. Right? That there's an aspect of trust that is being displayed by these individuals. We trust you, Jesus. We trust you, God, to heal us from these illnesses. So here you've got a couple of men, you know, that of course the demons that are living in them, they acknowledge Jesus' identity. We know you're the Son of God. Yeah. Why why have you what's the question they ask? Um, You've come here to torment us before yeah. the time. Why have you come here? To, we know who you are. How could you, if you if you did? I mean, not only does Jesus show that he has powerful over uh, that he has power over the physical elements, you know, sicknesses, and even the elements of the earth. He shows that he has power over the spiritual elements too. Here, oh yeah, and we're going to get into that here in yeah, a second. We're gonna take it to that um, moment, I, but yeah, I think it's neat too because uh, where we started tonight in verse twenty-seven. Yeah, uh, the men. Marveled, and what was the question that they asked? Who is this? Who, who is this yeah. man? Who is this man? Who is this man? And what are the demons? They don't even have to ask. They, they know, know right? He That's... is the Son of God, and so it, it's it's a mystery that man is trying to unravel that the demons, the, the spiritual beings, already know. Yeah. So there's a truth in the spiritual realm that they perceived or understand, and how you know spiritual beings interact and all that we don't know, but they have a knowledge of things that are going on outside of this earth. I, I guess. Think they know. this too goes to speak to the problem of sin as well, because we know that sin keeps us from a knowledge of God, right? When we're living a life for ourselves, which is evident in a lot of people's lives, and especially here, when they're living lives for themselves, they you, you disembody you know, the idea that God is real, that God does exist. You don't naturally come to the world thinking, well, there's not a God. You know, you're taught that. If your parents believed it, if you grew up in it, it's not something that you just naturally believe. Um, and so the, these people, they, you know, when you're, when you live for yourself, I mean, the difference being that we don't live in the spiritual realm, but these individuals do live in the spiritual realm. They do acknowledge God. And if we did not have sin, then we would be able to, I think. Well, 
bad, but even here, these demons know sure. who Jesus is, yeah, and they still don't follow him. I don't know, maybe I'm twisting my words around here, but... Because, I mean, that, that's always that's, marveled me here. Yeah. They know who Jesus is. Right. They know who God is, and they still don't follow him. So sometimes we think, well, if people just know enough, they'll follow Jesus, and yeah. sometimes that doesn't equate to it. Yeah, that's um, true. You want to get into spiritual being discussion. Right. Maybe it's also, you know, demons, there's no hope for them. So they just kind of, you know, give up on well, Jesus. And that might be because of the question they ask. You come here to torment before the time. The time. Right. They know that it's happened. Yeah. It's, it's already a done deal. Uh, and that's what's so beautiful about the book of Revelation. The the ending is there. I know you said you'd say in that. Yeah. Tonight, but, but, uh, but they know what is yeah. going to happen. Their fate has been sealed. Yeah. And, and I think that's kind of a teaching we see in scripture is that, when someone falls in the spiritual realm away from God, not talking about humanity, but like if an angel falls away or a demon here, what they're doing, I, I think demons are probably fallen angels. Um, but those that reject God, they're done. So basically, they're they're already on a sinking ship and they're trying to bring down everybody else with them. That's kind of what Satan's doing. Satan isn't going to change and repent and come to God or that. He's lost and he's just angry. So here, these demons know that one day they're going to be ultimately punished and judged. I believe that hell is designed for Satan and his angels. Okay, so I mean, it's they're going to be punished there, and they know that. So, Which, on that's that's interesting because oftentimes we 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 view Satan as the ruler, yeah. of hell, and he's the, the chief participant. Yeah, I mean, it's designed <laughs> for him. It's designed to punish him, his angels, and sadly, his also followers here in this life. So these demons know that, and they say, Jesus, why are you here to torment us before the time? It's not judgment day yet. Yeah. And now we find out that there's a herd of many swine feeding at a distance from them. And the demons begin to entreat him, saying, If you are going to cast us out, send us into the herd of swine. Now, casting out a demon, where do they go? I don't know. I mean, I, I, I mean well, and that's what, it, it seems often here that they need a body. And we'll, we'll see that again in Matthew 12. Um, but the, the, they, they almost need a place to be. Yeah, I, I don't know. I, I think that, you know, you read in Jude, and we're bouncing around a little bit, it talks about angels being preserved and they didn't keep their proper abode or being locked in chains and darkness in the great abyss waiting for judgment. Maybe once they leave their host, they get stuck in the abyss waiting judgment day. I don't know. The waterless places. Yes, that's another topic, right? But yeah, because here we have this herd of swine, so there's pigs here, and he said to them, go. So the demons are saying, you know, it's before the time, don't do it, but Jesus cast them out, and the demons leave the humans, and when Mark talks about this, we find out there's lots of demons and all that, but mm -hmm. the demons leave, and they go into the pigs, and the whole herd rush down the steep bank of the sea, and they perish into the waters. So the demons are still wreaking havoc, first off. You know, we always ask, like, why'd they do this? Well, they're not nice people, so they ruined the pigs, too. But So the demons leave the humans, get into these pigs, they careen down the shore into the lake and drown Imagine jumping on top of each other, smashing on rocks, all that kind of stuff. So, not a pretty scene. No. And when this happens, the herdsman, who I imagine is standing there with a staff going, what just happened to my pigs? I don't know if, I don't know if pig farmers have staffs, but that's what pictures in my mind, right? Like, hello? I mean, he's just out there with his pigs doing his thing. Jesus is over there interacting. But all of a sudden, the pigs are just running yeah. down the hill. The herdsman ran away. I would too. And went to the city and reported everything including what had happened to the demoniac. And behold, the whole city came out to meet Jesus, and when they saw him, they implored him to leave their region. So let's back up and talk about these demons and the pigs here a second. Do you have a comment about that? No, or? and I was just going to say, like, how could you not go in and tell everybody? Oh, yeah. And only Not only because the their, those demons, those men, are tormenting their passageway to get back to the city, but also because they've probably been wreaking havoc on, and, you know, how... Wouldn't you be mad about your pigs? Oh, I don't. Yeah, you wouldn't be really happy about it. <laughs> My pigs just drowned in the water. But so the why demons are gone? Why did they do that? That's a question. Right, I know Curtis. Good, Curtis yeah. brought up before we got here. Um, Curtis, you're asking me about demons and water, right? Yeah, because there there seems to be this this ancient teaching um, that that demons get, like are are actually killed in water. That there's that they the only way to kill a demon is to drown a demon. And then if you look at Matthew 12. Uh, 43, where it talks about how they go through the waterless places, there seems to be this contrast between water and demons. Demons do not do water. Well, I watched the movie Signs one time when the aliens showed exactly. up, no, but um, <laughs> the water got rid of them, but I don't know. There is, why they talk about the waterless places or desert places, I don't know. 
Maybe that's how you get them out of this realm into the next, and Jesus and them know that. I know there is like an ancient belief of that. I believe one of the pseudepigraphal books mentions uh, a demon being drowned as a punishment. I don't know. That's a lot of speculation. Because I, I think there's there, there's something significant there. Why did they choose that? Well, yeah. because Matthew, Mark, and Luke all share the story, and they all three mention that the pigs drowned. Yeah. So there's there's got to be something there, but something <laughs> we don't fully well, and, know. And another thing to, to point out that there's something here. Look at look at the word uh, and New American Standard. I don't think has it, but behold, in this section uh, we see it, and especially in the English Standard, uh, this behold is three times. Oh, wow. Behold. Uh, when when the demons cried out, what have you to do with us, O son of God? Then he says, behold, the whole herd rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the waters. And then in verse 34, and behold, the, all the city came out to meet him. So so, look at this, look at this, yeah, look at Matthew's, this. Matthew, he's calling, I mean, in this, in chapter 8 and 9, he uses the word behold uh, 11 times. He uses see 13 times. Uh, there, there, there's something significant about these miracles that Jesus is showing. And I think it ties back to that authority concept. Show that right. Jesus has the authority, not only in his power, teaching, power, but, but in what power. he does. Well, so because because that's you could the Greek word I think is dynamite, which which is where we get our probably our English word dynamite, right? Power, get this idea of of Jesus having power over the physical ailments of human beings. Jesus having power over demonic possession. I, I just like that. I I think authority translates better with this idea of power um, that we're seeing. It's not this, um, you know, uh, I'm in an authoritative, you know, you do what I tell you to do, but Jesus has power and he's exhibiting power over um, those individuals. And no, those, I actually believe it's the one for royal authority, like power and rule. They're, that exousia one right there. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but it's, just, it's a powerful word. It's the same one he uses in Matthew 28 when he says, all authority in heaven and earth has been given unto me. What so it's a 18? supreme authority. That one. Yeah, I think that's how we use it, 8, 9. But uh, anyway. Regardless, Jesus okay. has authority. Jesus has authority. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so Jesus has great authority, and he has the power and rule to do that. But let's, before we go into all of this, first off, we can, how does this fit into Matthew? It shows the power of Jesus. Yeah, and, and I think it, it ties in nicely with the other four miracles that we think. Um, because it mentions that Jesus has the power over uh, externally seen ill. Jesus has the power over space. Um, Jesus has a power over internal illnesses. Nature, that we can't too, see. right? Has power yeah. over nature, has power over uh, the, 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 the spiritual realm. Uh, and so, by looking at these five miracles, there, there's nothing that we could ever experience that isn't captured in these five. Uh, every, everything that we will ever see in this world will either be something that external, something mm-hmm. internal, something natural, something spiritual. Uh, or something through time and He space. has power over all of it. Over so everything. even if we don't understand everything there is to know about a demon here, we know that it's showing that Jesus has power. But let's let's throw this out here then, because it always pops up when people ask about demons. Nick, do demon possessions happen today? Why know. or why not go? I don't know. Curtis, yeah, I I, I don't know. I, I don't think I have enough to to say that to to answer the question correctly. Uh, because uh, similarly, I don't know. I'm stumbling over my words a little bit. I don't know what I would I, be looking for if huh. if if I if. There was. Like, and and there's, there's people who, who say that they've experienced third world countries that they they say there's no other explanation for. Um, but but the thought is is that if we have any any semblance of Jesus or the Spirit uh, within us, there, there's absolutely no room for a demon to get inside. Yeah, Jesus always wins. Yeah, and, and so it's just that if we have that knowledge, uh, it might not even have to be an in-depth knowledge or a, a, a faith-deriving uh, knowledge, but if we have some semblance of Jesus, there, there's not a room for it. Cliff Sabre Theory time, okay? I think what we see in Scripture, when it comes to spiritual beings, whether it be angels or demons, God allows them a certain amount of influence at different times depending on the situation. It appears that there's certain times in Scripture where these demons had more ability mm-hmm. to have influence going on than maybe others and angels too like mm-hmm. we have an angel coming down striking down Herod with a sword you know what i mean mm-hmm. and that kind of thing but then other times you don't i believe that angels are working in this world today and god uses them as ministering spirits i also believe that demons are working in this world on and they're in alignment with the will of satan what to extent they can work i don't know but i do know that if you're following jesus you are not going to follow their wishes well, and that's paul paul clearly says that our fight in this world is not uh, against the physical. 
Yeah, uh, it is against the spirit. It's against uh, spiritual and, and, and there, there's, there's, it, Paul wouldn't be saying that if we weren't being how yeah. we understand that, it that's or not. what we need to be fighting, not not each other. Yeah, and I think our our kind of our post enlightenment era way of kind of thinking, we have this tendency to anything spiritual is fanciful and make believe. So we don't talk about that. We kind of we gloss over those things. But I think there is a spiritual realm. And there's good guys and bad guys in that. And when we are following God's will, we're in a line with God's team in that. And the spiritual forces of good. I also believe there's spiritual forces of wickedness. And I believe one day the spiritual forces of wickedness will be punished. But just not yet, according to these demons here. Well, and there's, there's so much, again, that we don't understand. So much that we don't need to understand. The stuff that we do yeah. need to understand, it's clearly written out. But, but there is absolutely no denying that there is another realm um, that we can't comprehend. Is it Elisha or Elijah? Yeah, where, where, where his eyes were open and he saw this great battle? Yeah. It's just like uh, there's another dimension, if you will, uh, that we just can't perceive. Yeah. Crazy. But I think we do need to acknowledge it more. And I've tried to, in my own life, use terminology that's, I think sometimes other churches do a better job than us with it. Mentioning spiritual terms like, God is is guiding me in this direction or strengthening me or that's or maybe even referring to because you know I think of like some sins that are just so horrific I'll call them demonic you know what I mean and maybe I'm using it wrong but to me by referring it to that at least reminds me that it's so horrific when I hear about someone you know molesting a child or murdering someone I'm like that's just pure evil that's demonic that's satanic you know what I mean and that kind of thing so I don't know, I try so, to acknowledge it and then if we claim to, to speak where the Bible speaks and use Bible words, Bible terms for Bible things, I, would, I think that would be appropriate. I, I think it is. And I think we need to not shy away from that type of, of speech. So do we do ourselves a disservice when we do shy away from that? I think so. I think we, we lessen our, I don't like the term spirituality, but I think when we don't acknowledge the fact that we are at least sealed with the Spirit and spiritual <laughs> beings and that, you know, guideline and that we're not part of something bigger it just becomes all about the here and the now. But when you understand there's something bigger that you're part of, it gives you more not purpose just and about meaning. Us. You know, yeah. There's some there are other things happening that we're not aware of, but that God tells us, look, you need to be aware of these. You need to be aware of at least this much of this so that you understand how to respond or react or to think or to look or to understand that particular situation. Yeah. In a spiritual sense, you know, you could say, Well, maybe this thing happened and God is using this thing to teach me. Why, why I should or shouldn't do this. Or this happened and there's something here that I'm not necessarily seeing that I need to think about or meditate on more to understand what it is trying to teach me about myself. Yeah. I think there's a lot of that in a lot of our lives. What we experience, what we experience through death, what we experience through life, raising children, what we experience through watching our parents grow, what we experience you know, with our jobs and our finances is all teaching us something mm -hmm. That we need to learn to help us improve ourselves, you know, especially Christians, there's more of a message. And, and some of that could be providential, some of it could be I, circumstantial. Like but if so, we just acknowledge all good things are from God and I yeah. learn from it, then you kind of have a better and, outlook. And we don't, and that's the thing we don't know, and that's yeah. what I'm saying, you know, there's, there's, there's a teaching in almost everything that happens, you just got to look for it. Well, that's everything they need to bad. know about angels <laughs> and demons. Now okay. we're so, so back to your, your question on demons uh, and with the water, is there some connection with I don't want to make that jump, but my, I don't know, my theological ears are spidey sense tingles Maybe, with that. Maybe, but <laughs> yeah. there is no text that tells us anything <laughs> like that. But I mean, but I mean, it, it, seem, it seems to go along with a trend you see in scripture, okay? But there is nothing that I can see at all that ties it, but eh, maybe. All right, so let's move away from this. So they, after this, the whole city came out to meet Jesus because they heard about what he did and the demons and the pigs. And they tell him to leave because they're just kind of overwhelmed, I imagine. When something, sometimes when something just so amazing happens, you just can't comprehend it. You just, just go away. I can't, I can't take yeah, it. And we see the same thing down here in chapter 9, verse 8, that the crowds were afraid. I mean, when you see this awesome power, this awesome authority, uh, it, it should trigger some fear. Yeah. It should definitely trigger some fear and some respect right. at the same time. And so it's one of those things that, they might also just be thinking selfishly that yeah. their livelihood is you're, now, you're is killing now pigs, the and now you're but causing a bunch of problems. There's like, what are you going to do to us? So they get back in the boat, verse 9. 
they get into a boat, well, not the boat, it says a boat, might have been a different boat, but they get, they get into a boat, and Jesus crossed over the sea and came to his own city. So now they go back. And when they brought, and they brought to him a paralytic, lying on a bed, seeing their faith, Jesus said to the paralytic, and I know this is parallel to Mark and others, but I don't want to get into what they talked mm -hmm. about there. So you just have a, we are told here in Matthew that a man is paralyzed and he's being brought to Jesus and the man is being carried on a bed. And he tells the paralyzed man, now we're probably assuming as a reader, oh, Jesus is going to heal another person. But Jesus doesn't heal him right away. Jesus says to the paralyzed man, take courage, son, your sins are forgiven. Whoa, now. He's already, yeah, he's seen power over demons and power over illness and power over the sea. But now Jesus is claiming to have power over sin. He's able to dish out forgiveness. And in verse 3, the scribes are there, and they said to themselves, this fellow blasphemes. Now, why would he be blaspheming by saying, your sins are forgiven? Only God can forgive sins. Yeah, God forgives sins. So by Jesus saying, your sins are forgiven, Jesus is saying, I am God, right? He's saying, I'm God. Now and that lines up with everything else that we've just talked about. You know, with people calling him Lord, with the demons called, saying, oh, son of God, with Satan saying, oh, son of God, you know, proving his identity as the Messiah that God has chosen to be in this place. And now, and the Pharisees are the only ones that seem like that aren't seeing it. Yeah. Everybody else is going, whoa, wait a minute, whoa. You Even know, the demons see yeah, it. Yeah, look, when the crowd saw they were afraid and they glorified, go, oh, this has to be, what was their natural reaction to Jesus healing this man? Well, they were they were, they were were in fear, but they, had, they glorified God. Like, look, this isn't just, you know, some man. This is a man who's from God. Absolutely. Uh, and it, it's, it's... I can say absolutely. <laughs> Inside joke, they said I say absolutely too much. Okay. Absolutely. Uh, but but it's cool, and, and I think we'll, we'll be able to see this fleshed out a little bit more in verse 4. Um, but there's this repeating concept of what, what Saul, Saul, Saul. And as Nick, as you were mentioning earlier, uh, in, in 721, Jesus says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, right. went to the kingdom of heaven. And then we, we see um, the first miracle. The leper calls Jesus Lord. Uh, the centurion calls Jesus Lord. We see their faith. Here, what does he, he, he emphasize? He says that Jesus saw their faith. Yeah. I think it's still tied back to this righteousness. We're called to a higher level of righteousness uh, that's tied into our faith, that's tied into our action. But what's interesting here, it's not the paralyzed man's faith yeah. that Jesus It's saw. the people that brought him too. Yeah. So the paralyzed man might have not been on board. He's paralyzed. He's All right, the buddy yeah. said, look, we believe in Jesus. We're going to take you to him. So the, And Jesus sees their faith. And he sees their faith and says to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven. But Jesus is also, and I don't mean this disrespectfully, but he can also stir up trouble a little bit. And he does it intentionally. Here's the other thing I want to point out. And this this one he says in nine in chapter nine and verse two, he says, Take heart, my son. Look over at, at uh, chapter nine and verse twenty two. This is the account of the woman uh, with the hemorrhage, right? Jesus turned to her and seeing her, he said, Take heart, daughter, your faith has made you well. He doesn't say anything about this man's faith, but I wonder if there's something to do with that terminology that God is acknowledging that individual as a child They're of close him, maybe, right? Maybe. My son, my take care, take heart, my daughter, right? And, and don't give up. Have some courage. You know? and, and we see, believe that I can do this. And we see this 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 faith concept being tied throughout because what did he tell the apostles or his disciples uh, when the storm came? Mm. Oh, you of little faith. Yeah. And so there's there's this thread of faith woven throughout all of. So the, he tells the man that his sins are forgiven, and the crowd, or especially the scribes, they say he, or at least are thinking that he's blaspheming. Verse 4, Jesus, knowing their hearts, said, or knowing their thoughts, said, Why are you thinking evil in your hearts? Which is it easier to say, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up and walk? He goes, look, it's, it's pointless. I can say either one I want here. But verse 6, but so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority. There's that same word there. Yeah, authority on earth to forgive sins. Then he said to the paralytic, get up, pick up your bed, and go home. And he got up and went home. And when the crowd saw this, they were awestruck and glorified God who had given such authority to men. Now there's a lot there, but I do want to mention the last verse before we go back at this. Notice all of these sections end with the people are amazed or awestruck, and they recognize the authority of Jesus. 
So for us, when we see how amazing Jesus is, it needs to point us toward his authority and power and rule. Who and should we trust to save us? Only Jesus. He has the authority. Right, and, th and that's who should we trust to save us? Yeah. The crowds connected that dot. They right. saw it. And, and then what conclusion did they come to once they saw that? That he is to be feared and, and glorified. I mean, when you think about it, too, you know, we think about this terminology, this idea of Lord, right? When, when, you, when somebody is made your Lord, you're acknowledging, automatically acknowledging their authoritative position. Mm -hmm. I know what that individual can, has the power to do, not only to me, but to the people that work under him. He can fire me, he can hire me, he can bless me, he can do good to me. There's all sorts of things that can, yeah. that can happen. And I think that these people acknowledge that Jesus is in that position where he can, he can bless people, he can do good things. He's doing good things. Yeah. And he's showing people his power, and it's allowing them to trust God. And it's only him that has mm -hmm. that ability. Yep. And, and I don't know, you could tell me that you weren't, you were going this direction or not. <laughs> um, but it says that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. But why does Matthew include on earth? I haven't thought about that too much. Um, maybe just it. because, yeah. I think he does. On, maybe he doesn't say on earth, earth, but maybe emphasizing the the here and the now, the fact that he's in the flesh, he's there. Um, Mark says it too. Mark, Mark says it too. Yeah. Uh, I don't know. Maybe because if it's just a future forgiving, it's one thing, but here and now he has the authority. His it authority would, is a future I think authority. Son of terminology, they would have identified the, the Messiah or someone in a prophetic position. Well, that's but, it but it represents his humanity. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that's, that's what I'm saying is, is they would have known he said, Son of Man, that he was talking about himself in reference to the kingdom, to, to the, the house of the kingdom of Israel, I think. And from what I've heard, uh, and they would have known that when he said, when when this comes, not only is he acknowledges the Son of God, but he acknowledges this this prophetic individual who's in a position of authority. Yeah. I think the title of Son of Man holds that. So when he says that the Son of Man has authority, we know that the Son of Man is coming through prophecies like Isaiah, all the way back to the beginning of, of the garden story when Adam you know, and Eve are cast out of the garden, we know that there's going to be some, a time when God is going to send this individual to redeem all the people. Talk about through David. I mean, there's just this whole big storyline that all falls on to what we're talking about yeah. when it comes to Jesus. The Son of Man on earth, yeah. his humanity, but yet he has spiritual and authority. This is the time when Jesus is coming. God is, is revealing himself to humanity once again saying look i've sent my son to redeem you from your sins he let me show you his power let me show you what he has the ability to do even knowing what he's going to die on the cross the ability to work through that storm and continue on staying with that all the way to the end to where now humanity has a chance has a hope, has again it. to live in, well in the presence of god mm -hmm. it's amazing and that's why they were awestruck, and that's why yeah. we're awestruck when we look at this. Because yeah, he, God gave that authority to men in the sense that Jesus is man in the flesh there on earth. So, I mean, he concludes that section with the authority of Jesus. And now we go into this, this situation where Jesus is moving on in what he's doing. And Jesus went on from there, verse 9 of Matthew 9. And he saw a man called Matthew sitting in the tax collector's booth. And he said to him, follow me. And he got up and followed him. Now, we already emphasized the immediate following when he called them the right. fishers of men and all that. Here's another instance now of someone getting up and following what Jesus asked him to. But this guy's a little different. This guy's a tax collector. He's a sellout for the Roman occupation. He's guys that's ripping people off and making money. And now he's following. He's not supposed to follow Jesus. He's supposed to be the bad guy. But so far, the scribes and the Pharisees seem to be the bad guy. Um, then it happens. So it gets even, I don't know, it gets worse, at least to the <laughs> Jewish mind. Verse 10, then it happened that as Jesus was reclining at the table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were dining with Jesus and his disciples. So Jesus is calling a tax collector, and now not only one tax collector, but what? We got lots of people. Lot of them. Yeah, uh, many tax collectors and sinners of the unsynagogued people, the unchurched people yeah. today. Uh, Jesus is right there in the thick of it. And, well, not only that, I mean, these were people who were religious, had a religious upbringing, but were not 
religious in the sense that they were continuous synagogue temple worshippers. So this is why this is bad. Well, you're a Jewish man working for the Roman government. Yeah. What are you doing? You're 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 a sinner. You don't come to synagogue on Sabbath day, or you don't you don't you know you don't come to you don't come to the scripture readings, or you don't go to the temple every year and make your sacrifices and your offerings. You're a sinner. And, and they are, and even Jesus calls them sinners right. too. And that's so what, these but, are lost but, people. These are right. but Jesus still acknowledges them as people. Oh, absolutely. The religious teachers of the world. Well, if you don't do the correct things, well, then you you know we don't associate with. Them. Well, and that's what we see in the next verse. Yeah, so the Pharisees, who were the self-righteous religious leaders, they see Jesus at a house with tax collectors, and they're all reclining at a table, lounging around, just having a great time together. And it, they said, why? They, they're talking to his disciples. So instead of talking to Jesus, they go to his followers and try to stir up all. And you see that happen. Why is your preacher doing that instead of talking to him, right? That kind of thing. So they go to the, his followers and said, why is your teacher eating with the tax collectors and sinners? When Jesus heard this, so Jesus hears it, but their accusation is, well, how dare he? Why is he there with him? And you need to rein him in a little bit. You need to control him some. Uh, one of the things, Cliff said, pet peeve time, is instead of talk, because as a preacher, you know, I'm in kind of a public role, and people see me and hear me and all that. A lot of times when people have a problem with something Cliff has done or said or preached, a lot of times it's go to my favorite elder or go to the deacons or go to every other member and talk about it and said, none of you guys would ever do that, but other people would, you know, instead of talking to me. And they're kind of doing, I'm not saying I'm like Jesus, but I'm saying that <laughs> I can understand that the problem here, they're, they're going to others trying to stir up dissension so, among his, yeah. yeah. Hey, do you have a, a reason or an explanation as to, this is the way I see it at least, as to why your teacher, why your rabbi is doing what he's doing? Yeah. Why is he eating with tax collectors and sinners? I really want to know. If he if he really is a teacher and a rabbi, yeah, why is it self righteous? It's sarcastic. Yeah, yeah. And, and that's yeah. what I that's what I think. You know, I mean, just like anybody, like you, that's you would go. Well, you, you think you understand something, yeah. and then something happens, and you go, "Well, I don't know if I understand that, but I'm not bold enough to go to the teacher and actually ask him himself." So I'm going to go to the people that I see at lower maybe level. Maybe I could sway. You know, yeah. maybe I could ask them, "Hey, Curtis, why did, why does Cliff always punch his nose yeah. when he talks?" Why does he say absolutely? You do that, really? No, you don't. I do that. That was itchy. <laughs> no. yeah, and so then at the same time, they try to like pull people off and start yeah. building their own following. Yeah. Right. Uh, but but it's interesting. What it shows that the Pharisees had had secluded themselves from society. Yeah. They they had lost an evan, uh, evangelical or evangelistic. Thank you. Uh, yeah. they, they, they they missed the outreach opportunity right. where they just surround themselves in their own synagogue. And they're only concerned about themselves. And, and I think that I, I fall into that a lot. Yeah. Where I'm only concerned about the people who sit in the pews beside me. Um, and, and that's not what we're called to do. Where we miss the, the whole picture to go out and evangelize. Uh, to go out to the tax collectors and sinners of today. Uh, instead, we just hang around each other and build each other up and start talking about others. Well, look what Jesus says. When Jesus heard this, he said, It is not those who are healthy who need a physician or doctor. It's those who are sick. Jesus is surrounding himself with the sick people to try to yeah, heal them, right. you know, spiritually speaking. And like you said, we have a tendency that we want to make everything nice and neat. If I could get everybody that ever came to a church service, grew up in the church, knew book, chapter, verse for everything they're supposed to do, and be didn't have any issues, or at least they hid them all, you know mm -hmm. what I mean? Then we then it would be good. But the reality is Christianity is supposed to be messy. We should be around the people that are struggling with this sin, the addicts, the downtrodden, the violent, the gangs, all of that. Those are the people that should be drawn to us to notice. They're drawn to Jesus. Jesus didn't just call them. They're coming to him. So we should, if we're going to be like Jesus, we should be nice enough people that sinners still want to be our friends. Because they know we're not going to judge them for something that they did. We don't have to guilt trip people, guilt trip a person who knows they're doing wrong. We shouldn't guilt trip anybody. But we don't have to guilt somebody, anybody who knows they're doing something wrong. So like in this situation, right, you've got a bunch of tax collectors and sinners, Jewish people working for Roman governments and, and not attending, you know, and doing the normal Jewish things. Jesus doesn't have to guilt trip them. Jesus shows them, look, I'm this teacher. I have compassion for you. I want to teach you. I want to help you get back on track, you know. And then the Pharisees are over there like, wait, why are you hanging out with those people? You know, Jesus says, look, it's not those who are well, right? If, you, if, you're, if you're good, if you're okay, and you're good health, you don't really need a doctor to yeah. fix you. Yeah, absolutely. 
But look, you see, it's it's the idea of how I perceive people. Do we look at them as someone who is lost, or do sure. we look at them as someone who could be saved? Right. Judge not, yeah. right? Yeah, Go yeah. back to seven one. That whole concept, that, that the standard of measure that we use on others arose right. against that's us. That's exactly what I'm Let, thinking. Right let's, right. Said that. let's view all people as someone that has a potential to be made well, yes. not that they're just permanently sick. Yes. Right. And, and not if, per, put on the persona that we're perfect. And if Jesus could just <laughs> heal people and forgive people. Couldn't he save these people? Yeah. yeah. Uh, and so he says, go and learn what this means. And it's from Hosea 6.6. 6, I desire compassion and not sacrifice. I did not come to call the righteous but sinners. Jesus didn't just call us to be churchgoers. He called us to make sacrifices for the sake of others and show compassion to them. Yeah. And, and it's it, uh, that illustration on those who are sick, they go out seeking a physician. You talk about the sinners, the tax collectors. Right. They went and sought Jesus' companionship. The Pharisees weren't doing that. No. Uh, the, this righteous, these self-righteous people weren't seeking Jesus. They had everything solved. They didn't need a Savior. Right. The sinners need a Savior. The sinners know they right. need a Savior. They're the ones that are savior. wise enough to acknowledge that they, they need a Savior. The ones who think they know it all, they're like, they, they don't need a Savior. Well, I understand how the world was created. I, I, under, if the, I understand that we came from a tiny organism that just happened to bloom. Do you really? Do you really understand that? Were you there to see with your own eyes? That's the stuff I think about when I ask. It's like, you know, you, you can't you can't sit there and say, I understand all that. But then you come to this point in your life and you go, well, maybe I was wrong. Maybe, maybe this does turn out different than I thought. And when you be. come to an understanding that you need a doctor, we should be the one that's there with the great physician's message. Right, and that's what I was getting to. Is that, you know, but I liked your comment. You said, you know, they're the, they're the sinners and the, and the sick and the people who know they're doing wrong are the ones, and, and the people who come to that understanding are the ones who know they need the physician. And, and it's perfect point. And, and what does Jesus tell the Pharisees that they need? He tells them, go learn, learn what this means. Yeah. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. We, and we need to learn that too. Yeah, uh, we, we often check off our Christianity as, well, I do these things, but am I truly showing mercy toward others? Well, our la last section we're going to look at here in our class tonight is verses 14 through 17. We'll go through this kind of quickly because I know we're keeping everybody on the broadcast a little bit long. But it says, then the disciples of John. So John the Baptist is still functioning and doing his yeah. thing and preaching. So now some of the disciples of John come to Jesus, and they ask him, why do we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? Now, this is an interesting dialogue. Mm -hmm. And Jesus said to them, the attendants of the bridegroom cannot mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them, can they? But the days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast. Now, we'll get into this next illustration, but the question is, Jesus, how come you're not fasting right now? Jesus doesn't condemn fasting because he previously yeah. talked about it in, in chapter, you know, was it chapter 6. So he's already talked about fasting, but now they say, well, how come you guys aren't? And Jesus says, well, it's kind of like a wedding situation. When the groom is there, you're busy taking care of wedding stuff. When the groom leaves, then you can be sad. You know, uh, I remember talking to my in-laws that wedding's going on. Everybody's happy, having a good time. When Zinni and I got in the car and left the wedding, then I remember Dave saying, that's when I felt like, whoa, what just happened, right? And it's kind of, there's a time and a place for everything. So the question is, how come you're not fasting? And the answer has to do with there's a right time. So verse 16, he gives another explanation. He says, no one puts a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, for the patch pulls away from the garment and a worse tear results. Nor do people put new wine into old wineskins. Otherwise, the wineskins burst and wine pours out and the wineskins are ruined. But they pour new wine into fresh wineskins and both are preserved. I don't wonder, I don't wonder, just to go back, I'm sorry, I know you're already forward, but I don't wonder if, if John's, John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting in accordance with some type of Jewish festival or religion that caused them to say, well, we're fasting, but Jesus and his disciples are not fasting, and so that's why they're asking, that's what prompted this question out of nowhere. If there was a certain time of year or a certain, I don't know, I'm just Making a guesstimate because it's, this wouldn't just come out of nowhere, right? Yeah, I I think that maybe there was 
you know, there's fasting that was happening for many different spiritual reasons, but they were based upon kind of old covenant theology sure. and that kind right, of stuff. Right. And right now Jesus is here. And once Jesus leaves, there'll be a time to fast again. We were waiting for his return. So it's kind of like there was a lot of people fasting, waiting for a Messiah. Yeah. And Jesus says, no, when the bridegroom's here, you don't do that. But when he leaves, then you can fast again. So I think there's a mingling, there's a mixing that's happening. And Jesus saying yeah. it's not supposed to happen. You're kind of bringing old system into new system. Yeah. And right now we're in the in-between time. So right. hold off on that kind of stuff. You know, it's not like, like right now, don't go out there and build synagogues or church buildings just yet. We're right. doing this. Yeah, you know what I mean? Right now, we need to be preparing our fresh wineskins because we're putting new. Yeah, there's right. something new coming. So don't worry about the future stuff sure, just yet. Sure. So I, it is difficult to wrap my mind around this. I think ultimately, Jesus didn't do or teach exactly what they thought he was going to, and he never does. Uh, they were expecting him to behave one way, and Jesus is saying, it's not time for that yet. There will be a time. He's not saying don't ever fast or anything mm-hmm. like that. He's just saying right now, and I think he's talking about himself, the bridegroom is here, but when he leaves, then you can go about the normal spiritual disciplines like fasting. Right. It's kind of my thought on this. But it is it is different, um, it, but it shows, again, his authority and his power. He's not concerned with fitting their mold of teaching. Right. You know, you're not going to put him in a box. He's authoritative. He's had son of God. He's amazing, yeah. and he's not going to fit where you want him to. Any thoughts on that section right there? I know it's difficult. Well, and, and I, I think that we often, we want to take this and run with it, and I think apply it in a way that, that is not there, where we, we look at the gospel and want to have like a, a generational, uh, each generation has its new wineskin that the, the new wine is put in. And I think that that'd be a misnomer because, yeah. because it's the gospel's the same regardless of the generation. Here, Jesus was, was fulfilling the old line. Uh, Jesus was implementing the gospel and to apply it today. I mean, there's, there's, I think, organizations that use this illustration right. to try to, to shift uh, the pendulum a little bit. Um, yeah, there's that. And I've also seen that. people use it to say that quit trying to mix Old and New Testament. I don't think that's it exactly either. I even wrote it in my Bible one time and I disagree with it. But um, that he was, that, I mean, I think that the conception is that, you know, we're not trying to take Old Testament law and it upon New Testament people, kind of like what we would see with the Galatians, where they were binding circumcision. Mm-hmm. I think maybe that may be, but also I, I like the illustration he puts here. He says, no one puts a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. In other words, nobody does this, right? Nobody takes who has a hole in their jeans, right, and takes a piece and tries to fill it with a piece of old cloth, because you're not making the problem any better, you're just making it worse, right? Mm-hmm. By putting that old piece yeah, of it's just gonna cloth, tear. right, it's just going to tear. And then he says, neither Right? So no one does this either. Right? No one puts new wine into old wineskins. Right? Because the wineskins have already been used. They've already been uh, primed. And so now if you put new wineskins, I think Mark is the one that that explains this in a little bit more detail. He says that the wineskins, when you put new wine into old wineskins, they burst because the wineskins were designed to expand with the new, Mm -hmm. with the wine expanding and old wineskins, when the wine expanded, it just First all well, and Jesus is bringing in a new era. Right, and that's... Go ahead. I was going to say, and then, if they're trying to force that new era, the discipleship of Jesus, his messiahship, into right. the old way of perceiving things, it's not going to work out. Right. You're not going to force Jesus to serve as a temple prophet or something. You're sure. not going to force Jesus' yeah. disciples to, you know... Become Levites. I know that's right. not how it works. You know what I'm and saying? Bring Jesus and let him be. No, he's you're not. not. You're not making Jesus into a new Jewish priest. Right. He's different. Yeah. Don't try to force it into that mold. And I and I don't want to. And I, they can't be asking him something necessarily sinful here because yeah. the disciples of John are are doing good. You know what I mean? They're not that's bad kind of guys. Like just an innocent question. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I, that's why. And his answer is it's it's just not the right time. Yeah. It's kind of the answer. Well, and things are going to be yeah. a little different. Yeah, it will. And there's going to be something different that's coming. If you're watching this, though, let's ask that question in the Zoom class on Wednesday. What do you think exactly Jesus' point is in verses 15, 16, and 17 here? Because it's a challenge. I've always struggled with this, and I haven't found an answer. I like precise, exact answers. They put it in a nice little neat package. You know, and this isn't always... I don't have an efficient way. Nick always says I'm about efficiency. I don't have an efficient way to deal with this passage right here. So we'll talk about that. In the Zoom class, but we'll we'll wrap it up tonight. I do thank everybody for following along and listening. Um, keep reading in the Book of Matthew. Our sermons are going to go back to Matthew quite a bit. 
Um, not all of them, but, you know, as we even saw in our lesson this morning, talking about Jesus, it ties in a lot to what we are looking at. But keep digging in, keep studying, participate in the Zoom class. It sounds like we're going to be getting back to at least an in-person assembly soon. It's not going to be exactly the way we want it to be. No one's going to be completely pleased. But I know that together we can make it work and, and be together again. So I'm excited about that. Thanks for tuning in. Have a great day.